Welcome to Lit with Charles, a podcast on all things literary where I interview people who've either written books or have interesting things to say about them. If you're like me, then you love reading, but maybe you're not sure what you should be reading or maybe you feel intimidated by conversations around books. The main aim of this podcast is to make literature exciting and accessible and hopefully make you discover new books and authors that are off the beaten track. In this podcast, I try to cover all genres and types of books, from serious historical nonfiction to trashy novels, and I talk to all sorts of authors so that it never feels like the same episode twice. The Haiti of my childhood is one Haiti, and it's kind of like my father's Haiti. When I got to Haiti in 2010, it became my Haiti. It was a whole different ballgame than the Haiti I grew up in. In today's episode, we discuss the nation of Haiti, a small country in the Caribbean with a history that is equal parts heroic and tragic. It was the first country in the world to be established by a successful slave revolt following a 12-year war of independence from France in 1804. But it has in recent years been in the news more for its political instability and economic struggles, not to mention a cataclysmic earthquake in 2010, which killed anywhere between 100,000 to 300,000 people. Today, Haiti struggles with a power vacuum due to the assassination of its president in 2021 and the rise of insecurity due to local gangs. My guest today is the Haitian author Dimitri Leger, who wrote a novel based in the country God Loves Haiti, which was published in 2015, and it revolves around a cast of characters on the island who are caught in the 2010 earthquake. The book examines the aftermath of this tragedy on the local population with questions around fate and divine intervention arising from the rubble. There's an absurdist, tragicomic, but fundamentally human tale here, which reflects the complex history and culture of Haiti. In this interview, we talk about the country of Haiti as seen through his book and what it means to be Haitian and what recommendations Dimitri has on great literature. There's an immediate connection to religion in your book, um, namely with the title. Is it an ironic title given the tragic event of the book, i.e. the 2010 earthquake and wider Haitian history? And that seems to be the perspective of one of the main characters. Or is the title in line with the Christian theology that another character outlines in terms of God making those he loves the most suffer the most? Well... Haitians are deeply religious people. They're passionately religious. And this story takes place in the Catholic community of Haiti. These are questions that all Catholics ask 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Does God love me? Am I doing enough to earn God's love? Am I sinning too much? Setting myself for God's rejection? The prospect of heaven and hell and the prospect of purgatory. Those are things that are as old as the Catholic faith. So people of faith, and the people who reject the faith, they all have to always calculate where they stand in terms of heaven and hell, their sins versus their acts of good. These debates are, are human. They seem to be core to what we try to do as human beings every day. And my characters were no different. They were no different than Catholics anywhere, everywhere. It happens to be a faith that's the highest, actually the fastest growing faith in the world because it's spreading like wildfire in some of the fastest growing populations in the world. And these questions, for natural questions, 
I suspect as long as I'm writing about Haitians, as long as I'm writing about people of faith, those questions are always going to come up. So whether the title is ironic or not, that's for the reader to decide. Depends on where they see themselves standing in terms of God's favor, um, in terms of heaven and hell, or not. Because even atheists have to wrestle with, okay, I don't believe in God. God doesn't exist. That means if there's a heaven or there's a hell, I'll take a pass. But if there is a heaven and hell and you're an atheist, that means you're lining yourself up to go to hell. But I mean, people don't have faith or people who reject God, they have to make those calculations too. But people of faith have to make those calculations. And I suppose in my story, I explore all the ways that all the calculations lead to no answer because no one really knows. <laughs> <laughs> the title was dear to me in the writing process. And um, I really wanted it to provoke those questions because Haitians wrestled that question. And I wanted it to provoke the questions among readers. And I know readers, particularly readers across the world, there's been a tendency, particularly in the last hundred years, to equate wealth with virtue mm -hmm. and poverty and misery with lack of virtue. That's a relatively new thing. And that's pretty much came up in the 20th century because of the rise of capitalism and the rise of America as a dominant world power, the idea of wealth as virtue is the most, maybe the most dubious religion there is. So it's another kind of religion, you might argue. Very well, very well said. It's a kind of a religion. Um, it's a very new religion. All the older religions argue for care for the most vulnerable. The most vulnerable in the world are the most virtuous by virtue of the fact that they have a longer road to travel to get food, water, safety, and to avoid abuse. Caring for the most vulnerable people in the world is the most virtuous thing a person can do, along with forgiving those who trespass against them. So I guess, in a way, I wanted to, I'm old school, and I wanted to harken back to that notion of faith, the new religion of capitalism. Oh, wealth, that capitalism, wealth as virtue, I don't buy it. I study economics. I, I know the new aristocracy very well. But old school notions of virtue, of kindness, of generosity, of caring for the vulnerable, that touches me more and that seems more interesting to me. Can you give us a bit of an um, insight into your biography and your relationship with Haiti? So you're a Haitian, but how long have you lived there or how have you been connected to it in recent years, uh, especially since the earthquake? What is your relationship and how has it evolved with Haiti? Well, I was born in Haiti to Haitian parents. I traced my family in Haiti um, back a couple of centuries. I moved to New York when I was two years old. I moved back to Haiti when I was eight and I left Haiti for good when I was 14. My great affection from Haiti comes from probably my greatest inspection for the greatest Haitian I've known, which is my father. My father was far more Haitian than me because he lived all his life in Haiti. While me, I always went back and forth. I ping-ponged between the U.S. and Haiti since the age of two. School in one country, summer in the other country. That must have been an interesting cultural seesaw. You must have been buffeted between different identities and, and cultures and, and was that something that was difficult to manage or that helped you in your artistic path? Having lived in Geneva, I live in a community and I raise kids in a community that also move easily between languages and cultures. So my childhood was no different. 
if you do it from the beginning, if it's all you know, it's not that hard. I don't know whether my first my first words were in French or whether they were in Creole or whether they were in English. I do know probably my English accent is more solid than my French accent because I went to kindergarten in English and that's very formative. But no, I never found it particularly challenging. It just does the way I was raised, the way I lived. Um, the languages came easy for me. I do remember when I went back to Haiti when I was eight years old, I was quite the American and I had to learn to get my French accent right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that was challenging. And by the time I got it right, eight years later, it was time to leave and move to New York. And unfortunately, when I got to New York in 86, as a 14-year-old, I spoke English without an accent. So that spread me all types of troubles. But I had to catch up on the local slang, of course. And eventually I did, and I became a writer of in that local slang, in hip-hop slang, and, and through my whole 20s. So it worked out. I've seen this pay out among kids who grow up in multiple cultures or who have international parents who speak multiple languages at home. And the challenge is often the language. Some kids can balance two or three languages and two or three different cultures on a daily basis in the middle of a conversation even. Some kids can't. It's not universal that everyone can do that, even if you're born in that milieu. But I was lucky enough that I was, and I've been balancing it ever since. How long were you carrying this book inside you and how much of a catalyst was the earthquake to bring this book out of you? My years in Haiti, ages eight to 14, were like the best years. To be a little boy in a safe, fun Caribbean island is the best, it's the best. I ran around the island like it was my playground. It was like swimming here, football there, eventually girls parties. The Caribbean is amazing. In Caribbean life, when the country is stable and safe, it's amazing. So that stayed with me. That affection stayed with me. When I started thinking about writing a novel, I'd say when I had a son, and it happens to be his 21st birthday in a couple of days. And when he was born, um, I was like, oh, I got to get this done. I was 30. I'd published articles. I'd written for TV. I'd done every form of writing. You could do it in nonfiction, but because I love novels, because I love novels about questions of faith and war and peace and love, I always knew I had to write one eventually. And of course, when you have a son and you have a family, you also think about legacy. I didn't want my legacy to be, well, he was a nice guy with a great resume. So a book also had the most urgency, became urgent then too. It's like, okay, well, if I write a good book, if I die, at least the kids I have that. One of your main characters is, in fact, the president of Haiti, uh, who starts off as a borderline incompetent, somewhat weak man, at least from the perspective of his wife, who's then spurred into leadership and action and personal examination by the events of the book. I'm curious why you chose to position your main character, the very pinnacle of Haitian society, with the president. Why not pick a random Joe Schmo average Haitian citizen, what prompted you to say, I want to examine this national tragedy from the point of view of the president and his wife and, and their emotional story? Because it hadn't been done before. If you're going to write a novel, and by the time I started writing this novel, I was 40. If you're going to commit that time to writing a novel, you have to give yourself a lot of pleasure. Fiction writing is a great masturbatory act. 
So you have to write a book that you want to read. You have to write a book that doesn't exist. And I know Haitian literature inside out. I know Caribbean literature inside out. I know African literature inside out, Persian, Middle Eastern. I know literature, world literature outside of the European canon. And I know the ones that go from, that actually go and make it into European and American curriculums. And I've studied it for years. Um, I had a long time to prepare. And then I, when it was time for me to write finally, it was like, oh, what haven't I read? I've read a lot about Haiti. Haiti happens to get a lot of media attention. And Haiti also produces a disproportionate amount of writers. On any given year, there's half a dozen Haitian novels being published in the U.S. and France, and they're excellent. Excellent. There are excellent Haitian novelists working in English and French all over the world. And I wanted to make sure that if I'm going to write a novel, it has to say something or introduce characters that I haven't read before. And because I'm a fan of the classics, I'm a fan of Shakespeare. Shakespeare wrote about kings and queens of England. Why not write about President of Haiti? I guess there was also a, an opportunity to look at the perspective of international institutions and international aid in the framework of the earthquake. And your book seems at times to be a little bit critical of these international institutions and, and the aid worker community. Did I get that wrong? Or can you expand on that commentary? Well, once you go into um, looking at national leadership, once you go into the life of a president, it doesn't get more nationalistic than that. And once you look at a thing from a sense of national protection, national security, all relationships with foreigners through the lives of a president are fraught. All relationships between poor, somebody from a poor country and somebody from a wealthy country are fraught. All relationships between black countries and white countries are fraught. And all relationships between Haiti and everyone else in the world are complicated. I was having dinner last night with a friend of mine uh, here in Martinique who said, yeah, you know, it's really cool that you're here and it's cool that you're Haitian. But, you know, keep in mind that most people have real mixed feelings about Haitians here. And I'm like, no, tell me something I don't know. Most people have mixed feelings about Haitians <laughs> everywhere in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I've written articles on any given year. There's like four or five countries deporting Haitians en masse or threatening to deport Haitians en masse. It's complicated to be Haitian in the world. You're respected, but you're annoying. You're admired, but you're also hated. It's a thing. Being a Haitian is one of the great paradoxes. You're from a country that's the same age as America, that's 100 miles from America, but somehow has the most dramatically divergent fortunes because we were just never enough friends. We were, America and Haiti never became friends enough so that trade relations could be fraternal as they are with Canada or Mexico or Jamaica or DR. With us in America, it's always been fraught. Our relationship with France has always been, you know what I mean? It's like we, you lose a war, you could be a gracious loser about it, or you could be bitter and vengeful about it. Unfortunately for Haiti, generally, most of the countries that um, allies of France, after Haiti won the revolution, became vengeful. Instead of saying, okay, we lost the war, but let's keep doing business. Which is what England did with the U.S. England lost the U.S. Okay, fine. I'll still keep buying your cotton and your sugar and your bananas and, and keep doing business with you. Overnight, the king didn't say, okay, well, in that case, sanctions. We're never doing business for America. We're never buying your products. And we're going to wish you ruin. 
after you got independence in 1776. No, he just did business with it overnight. France, on the other hand, convinced the U.S. and everyone else to not do business with Haiti after independence. And economic relations between Haiti and the U.S. only started in 1899, like 95 years after the independence. And you know what? That leaves sore feelings. <laughs> that leaves a poor country. And it also leaves a lot of skepticism whenever a Haitian has to do business with an American. And it definitely leaves a lot of skepticism when a Haitian president has to do business with foreign presidents. You mentioned, for example, you used the term Republic of NGOs. Is that something that identifies a neo-colonialism of international institutions and or Western powers or because I, I was struck by that term in your in your writing and I was wondering how you know where it came from. It's common knowledge. When I went to Haiti in 2010, you asked me earlier um, how did the 2010 mission to Haiti after the earthquake how did that impact my the writing of this book? The Haiti of my childhood is one Haiti, and it's kind of like my father's Haiti. When I got to Haiti in 2010, it became my Haiti. It was a whole different ball game than the Haiti I grew up in. It was Haiti that had been in Occupied by UN peacekeepers since 2004. 12,000 peacekeepers. Can you provide some context as to why the UN was sending um, oh. peacekeepers in 2004? Because many people might not know okay. that historical period. Okay. Well, in 2004, Haiti had a period of great instability, similar to today. But in that case, it was a case of there was a president named Aristide. He was forced to leave power by America and France. That left a vacuum. Gangs took over. The country was violent and unsafe and terrible, as any country would be after its president is summarily removed. So then the U.S. responded by sending in 12,000 peacekeepers to calm things down. And peacekeepers stayed there, and then NGOs came along to support the peacekeepers, because peacekeepers are the military arm, and the humanitarians are the humanitarian arm of the peacekeepers. They used the protection provided by the peacekeepers to come in and open schools and build factories, generate farms, and, and do some good. But by the time I got there in 2010, this operation, this peacekeeping humanitarian operation, had been running the country since 2004. And the country was no better for it. The thing about peacekeeping and humanitarian support is it's great in a crisis, immediately stopping the bleeding after an earthquake, when a war ends, or stopping a war. But then it was time to develop a country the common practice, the most effective way to develop a poor country is trade, is not aid. But because Haiti of its unique position physically, it made it really easy for NGOs from all over the world to come in, go to America, set up shop in Haiti, and then send their kids to do internships in Haiti, and then send any curiosity seeker to go into Haiti and hang out for a few months and get to know Haiti. Haiti fascinates people. And when you have peacekeepers in town, that creates an, uh, a security blanket for people all over the world to come to Haiti and hang out for a few months and say, hey, they built a school. Or, hey, they helped feed some kids and take a photo op with kids. And that had been going on for a long time when I got there. And when the earthquake happened, it killed a lot of peacekeepers. It killed a lot of humanitarians. It killed even more Haitians because they lived in more precarious situations. And now it's a situation where the country gets to be built from scratch. How do you build from scratch when you have this army of humanitarians that because 
they infringe on the hegemony, the sovereignty of a state, it's almost parasitic, the relationship. It can seem parasitic because it's hard for a senator or congressman or president of a country to have agency when their salary and everything comes from the UN. When they need the UN's approval to initiate any policy or any program. So that relationship, that tension was there when I got there and earthquake exposed it. And then I discovered that's Haiti of today, and which is not unlike, which is similar to many other countries. And I happen to have worked in many other countries with similar arrangements, like Congo is similarly hamstrung by the biggest peacekeeping operation in the world. Mali, Somalia, there are many countries in the world that have used peacekeeping operations that may have outlived their usefulness, but that continue on because of the arrangement between it's convenient for everyone involved. The leaders get to not worry about social policy much, and the UN and its allies get to have careers. With regard to the earthquake, one of the characters in your book shows a lot of optimism and resilience and saying at one point, we'll view it as a bit of a piece of cake, is the quote, uh, at least relative to the past horrors of Haitian history, and sees it as an opportunity for cleansing and rebuilding. This is towards the end of the book. Is that a, a common point of view following the earthquake? How do Haitians view their history relative to this earthquake? Or I'm curious to see how this great tragedy fits in a history that's had its fair share of pain and tragedy. Well, my characters reflect the whole spectrum of Haitians. They respect the whole spectrum of, I don't know, citizens. Mm -hmm. There isn't a country without glory and disaster um, and inhumanity in their history. Definitely there aren't many countries that haven't committed a suicide, a genocide. And there are countries, there are many countries that have done revolts and revolutions from empire is the greatest thing. And all the countries with great revolutions are quite proud of that. So Haiti is in that lineage, lineage of countries that have done great revolutions, revolutions against imperial forces. You know, they're so popular in the culture that, you know, Star Wars exists. The Avengers exist. I mean, fighting empires is a great, noble thing, and Haiti has done that. Haiti paid a big price for that, for his victory, um, as I mentioned earlier. So Haitians are always wrestling with that. They're always wrestling with, like, wow, you know, our ancestors fought for 20 years to liberate themselves from slavery. 20 years! As I walk around here in Martinique these days, and I'm like, wow, so this is what, what could have happened if they didn't fight for 20 years and win. If they lost and France just kept running Haiti, Haiti would be as lovely as Martinique is right now. And now sometimes I ask myself, and this is probably for future books, my ancestors, when they were fighting that war for 20 years and not give up, did they suspect that if they won, the country would become a pariah and destitute? Or did they think if they won, the country would be welcomed in the arms of the bosom of countries that have won independence, economically strong, and they're going to do business together. My guess is they were hoping for the latter. I would imagine, yeah. Regardless, you look at the history and look at the present, sometimes the one thing that comes clear is that slavery must have been horrible. Slavery in Hispaniola, in Saint-Domingue, as the French called it at the time, it must have been so bad that they were like, you know what? We're going to fight to get free at all costs, no matter what. We're going to do two decades of war to get out of this. To get out of this, to beat Napoleon. And every country revolted. Every country that experienced slavery 
revolted. Any country that experiences colonialism, they are revolted. Of course. We just happen to be the guys who had had the magic bullet to slay the giant. But it's important to remember, I find, that bad as things are right now, and have they been since, what preceded independence must have been worse. (laughs) And so I guess that informs a little bit that character's view of the earthquake is it can't be as bad as that tragic past of slavery and the pain and brutality that that must have entailed. Centuries of it. The whole kidnapping in Africa, the middle passage in the bowel of ships, and then centuries of working for free and, and having your women taken away and your kids taken away. No, this is a piece of cake by comparison. This is, okay, as things stand today, it's an ecological disaster. There are no trees. The place is brown. The country never quite settled on a way to rule itself. And it could never quite find a great medium relationship with America. And that means perpetual um, economic difficulties. But these challenges, they're on one hand diplomatic, but diplomatic when it comes to relationships with America and the lack of trade. And they're also political in the sense that the country at some point has to come to an agreement on this is how we're going to rule ourselves. And this is how we're going to face the world to do business. This is how we're going to impose a rule of law and create peace to create an environment where FDI, you know, foreign direct investment, can come and flourish. Where our best and brightest could live and grow old and flourish. Um, at some point, leaders are going to have to make that decision politically. Do you think that decision hasn't been made? Do you think there are forces that are resisting what you're saying, which seems very common sense. But but do you think there are people resisting that point of view? Haiti lives in, does not live in a vacuum. All countries develop based on the quality relationship with their neighbors. The relationship between Haiti and France and the U.S. has tended towards dominance versus collaboration or exploitation versus collaboration. The only way to avoid being exploited or avoid dominating or bullying relationship with the West, if you're a country of limited means is by having a very, very strong central government. The poorest country that's moved itself out of poverty in the last 50 years is China. And we know how they did it. They have a strong central government. They got to dictate terms on how the Europeans and the Americans come in and how they leave. And that minimized exploitation, that minimized domination. And eventually, it helped China develop to the point where now they're equal partners. But the only way they were able to pull that off, the key factor is central government. Got it. The party was like, no, we're willing to starve instead of selling out. We want you guys in here piecemeal. We want to learn as much as sell. And they are lucky enough to have had a central government strong enough to pull that off and dictate the terms of access to their resources to America and the Europeans. No African country has had that strong central government. A few, but not as many as you would like. And Haiti definitely has not had that strong central government. And what I've found in my work in international relations is that it's so easy to undermine an elite. It's so easy to underline the national leaders of a poor country. It's so easy to bribe. And that keeps these countries, countries like Haiti, to have a solid political identity and to dictate terms with access to their resources to wealthier countries because they're so easily bribed. One of the aspects of the book that I found rather interesting was 
around language. Uh, many of the characters in the novel communicate in French, and there was actually very little Creole, and I wasn't sure about what is the role of Creole, how widely is it spoken in Haiti, why was Creole not more prominently featured in the book? I think that probably connects to your choice of having, for example, the president of Haiti as a central character. But what can you tell our listeners about the role of Creole and, and why did you make the choice not to include it a little bit more in, in your book? Well, because um, as I mentioned earlier, once I decided to do the book around the president, around the ruling class, the central government, that ruling class speaks mostly French. Creole is a language spoken for fun by leaders and aristocrats of a certain generation. It's not an official language, for example? It is now. Very recently, it's become the official language of the country. But if you're from a certain generation, no. French is the official language. And Creole is the language of the people. It's the language you speak for fun. It's the language you make songs of. It's the literary language for my characters, for that community, for the aristocracy of Haiti at the time in the book. The French speakers and English speakers. And in Haiti is interesting because in our history, the second language was always Spanish, not Creole, not English. It's only in the last 40 years hmm. has English emerged as the number two language. Is that right? It was French and then Spanish. Because before that, the Duvalier era and before that, our biggest trading partner was the American Republic and South American countries. Haiti is quite a Latin country. I mean, Hispaniola, I mean, Haiti and the Dominican Republic were one country for a very long time. So it makes sense that Spanish was the second language. Only in the last 40 years, since the dictatorship ended, and since American power kind of like became dominant since the dictatorship, so suddenly English has become a second language because to do business, you have to do business mostly in English with America when you can. And suddenly you have kids named Kevin, and you have American names popping up among kids in Haiti. It became trendy to do that. Haiti's ruling class today, their biggest trading partner and second home is Florida. It's not the Dominican Republic. It's not South America. It's not Brazil like it used to be. It's not Cuba. Me growing up, it was DR. It was Cuba. But today it's Miami. It's Pembroke Pines. As a result, English is a second language. And Anglo-Saxon names and, and slang have filtered into the culture. But that's a very recent phenomenon. In terms of your writing, would you ever be tempted to write in Creole or French or in another language, or are you primarily a, an English language writer? The rest of my characters, but me personally, because of how I was particularly raised, I think in French, but I write in English because I was a journalist in America and I was I'm a professional English writer. To this day, I write speeches, I write, I write reports. English is my professional language. And um, it's more efficient and faster for me to write in English. But my, the language of my heart, the language of my, in my head is French. What an interesting tension within you that you have the language of your heart, but did you ever consider that you, one day you could write a novel in French? Well, the, my novel got translated in French last year. And I love the translation. The translator was fantastic. And when I read it, the French, I was like, oh my God. It's like the French version that I thought in my head, he wrote it. Wow. And it was great. Wow. 
So for me, that duality is going to be there. And I do prefer French and Francophone communities are my heart, same way Haiti is my heart. So I love Creole. My Creole is, is terrible. My accent is shit. <laughs> but I love it because it reminds me of my childhood or the best parts of my childhood. So I'm always going to be partial to slang. I'm always going to be partial to um, hip-hop language. One of the characters in the book, the, the Haitian-American guy, his language was very American, very Brooklyn, was definitely not the King's English. And then was, he peppers his language with a lot of cursing. I curse a lot. I'm from that generation in America where hip-hop, we invented all these hip-hop terms and we still speak it because hip-hop became mainstream and everybody right. does it. But all those terms, hip-hop was invented, became popular in my high school in like Brooklyn, the New York of my era. So that's always going to be a big part of my writing, uh, Black American slang, because um, it's a big part of my culture. Yeah, I love American culture, and I love Black American culture. Got it. So, yeah, so Creole has to compete with all these things, <laughs> all these other languages, all these other subcultures. What, if anything, did you edit out of the book? Was there anything where that was originally in there that you then had to remove? I'm always curious as to what writers take out as well as what they put in. I happen to have been lucky where this is the first draft. Oh, wow. This is the first draft I wrote. And I took two years to find a publisher. I collected rejection letters for two years. And I remember my then wife was like, ah, man, maybe you should just rewrite it. Maybe you should definitely change the title. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to sell a book called God Loves Haiti in a city, in an industry that's quite atheistic or agnostic, which is New York City, where I published the book first. It was a challenge. I knew it was a challenge, but that was part of the game. That was part of the art. If it's not challenging, then why did you write it? So everything from the first sentence to the last were exactly as I wrote it. The one edit that happened in the two years before I sold it was at one point, one brilliant editor, Daniel Odell, at Simon Schuster at the time, he suggested I change the sequence of chapters because I write in a linear way. Initially, mm -hmm. the book was two chapters pre-earthquake, three chapters earthquake, and two chapters post-earthquake. And Daniel was brilliant. Daniel said, you know what? Let's start the book with the three chapters that are earthquake. And then go back in time. And then go forward in time. Mm -hmm. That was the big edit that took place. The only edit that took place. I did that for Daniel the summer of 2013. And then he went and pitched it to Simon Schuster's editorial board. Dad rejected it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but you kept the suggestions I kept the sequence. I kept the, the, the edits because it made the book stronger. I uh, made the book more percussive. And then we shopped it again that fall, and we got lucky finally. So um, shout out to Daniel for that edit. And after that, the editor who bought it, you know, she was cool with it. She didn't even change the sentence. Even more so, the hardcover cover, that was designed by a friend of mine in Geneva, Fidi Savioz. And I, that was during, after one year of shopping the book and getting rejected, I felt low. I'm like, maybe I should self-publish. And I'm like, Fred, I'm going to consider self-publishing my book, so divide me a great cover. He made the cover, and the cover was so nice that I was like, no, I can't self-publish. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see that cover in a fucking store someday. So I held on, and when I finally sold the book a year later, I told my publisher, hey, but would you consider using this cover designed by a friend of mine? And she said yes, and she chose the cover. So from cover title, word forward to the end, all produced by me and my friends, and nothing changed. It's a rare thing, but I got lucky. It is a rare thing. Okay, well, so let's now go to like our section of quick questions. Mm -hmm. 
just to get your literary tastes and and what you've enjoyed reading recently. So let's start with what have you read recently, say in the last 12 months, that you've really enjoyed and that you would recommend? Right this moment, I'm reading my favorite book. I don't even want it to end. It's the latest book by Pico Iyer. It's called The Half-Known Life in Search of Paradise. Pico Iyer is one of the greatest writers of the last 30 years. What Pico does better than anyone is to travel into a community and absorb the community's culture and translate it to the rest of the world in the most accessible and lighthearted way. So what he does in this book is he travels through various key countries to explore different notions of paradise. Mm-hmm. You know, as the man who wrote God Loves Haiti, I have a great stake in visions of paradise and visions of hell. You have a stake in paradise. Um, yeah. As any person of faith, visions of paradise. And, and it turns out the term paradise, the word paradise, was coined in Persia by a Persian poet. Who knew? Who, who knew? So Pico went and found out all these notions of how different communities around the world celebrate and envision paradise. It's not the crude stuff about 40 virgins. It's often inspired by a poet like Dante, but everywhere. So it turns out every country has a Dante. Mm -hmm. Every country has places of worship where they explore different notions of paradise in very intense ways. And Pico went out there and did the the travel and reporting so we don't have to. So us novelists could play with it. (laughs) Fantastic. Great source material for you guys. So besides quoting Dante's Divine Comedy, I will be quoting Pico Iyer. And some of the people he, he talks about. I'm reading a bunch of French books. My boy, Jean d'Amérique, Soleil Coudre. Best Haitian writer alive under the age of 30. Wow. Is Jean d'Amérique. He's a huge star in the French speaking world. And this novel follows a 12 year old in Paul Prince after the earthquake, trying to make her way. And Jean d'Amérique is a great poet. He's a poet originally. This is his first novel. Soleil Akut, and it's really good because Jean d'Amérique is of that new generation that's looking at Haiti, the post-earthquake Haiti, from a perspective of someone who grew up in it, or someone who lived the earthquake, or someone who knows it in a visceral way, and he writes in a very visceral way. Got it. He's a huge star in the French-speaking world. I highly recommend his books get translated into English, but I'm reading that in French right now. I mean, it's so intense. Me and most of my friends are reading it, and I met him like a few months ago. His writing is so intense and so beautiful that you read a couple of pages. It feels like a novel for most people. <laughs> like, you read a couple of pages of Jean-Dominique before going to bed every night, you're all right. Because it's such an intense blast of art. What's your favorite book that I've never heard of? All of the books by Idris Dantikat should be read and reread. Idris Dantikat is, is beloved. And two or three of her books are classics. Tell us a, a little bit about her, because our listeners might not be familiar. Okay, Idris Jantikat is the Michael Jordan of Haitian-American writers. She is our Toni Morrison. She is the most famous Haitian-American writer, novelist in America. Similar to me, she moved to America from Haiti when she was 12. and But she burst through when she was like 22, 24. She's a bit older than me, but I remember when she burst through, it was like, oh my God, she's telling Haitian stories. And Oprah, she, her book, her first book, Kikak, was one of Oprah's first books, but chosen. So she became a huge star as a result. That's back when Oprah chooses a book, a million copies fell off the shelf. And she became very celebrated then. 
And I met her around then and we became friends. And but since then, she's won a MacArthur. She's been shortlisted for National Book Award. She her output is prodigious. She publishes a book probably every couple of years, published maybe 10 or 15 or 20 books. But they're amazing. They're amazing. I don't mean to look at Haiti through the lens of its ruling class. She does a good job at looking at Haiti from all the lenses. And I prefer irony and humor. She really looks at the soul and how Haitians mine their pain into something beautiful, turn pain into diamonds. Edwish Dunsikad is our greatest writer in English about Haitians. And um, I feel like she should be more widely read. She's done meditations on death. She's done fiction and nonfiction. She's a novel set in Lil Gan, outside of Paul Prince, um, the Haitian countryside. She knows how to get to the heart of um, the Haitians in a dramatic, beautiful way. And I remember when we reading her going, oh, my God, right. She's proven that it can be done. We can do Haitian stories that Americans will read. You're the dictator of a small country. What book do you make compulsory reading? Besides God Loves Haiti? Oh, you can name your own book, sure. Oh, sure. I mean, if you're an aspiring ruler of a poor country, you're an aspiring dictator, you're an aspiring humanitarian, you're an aspiring politician in a developing country, or you're, you're an aspiring soldier and you're a general. If you're a general, a dictator, a president, or a CEO who wants to know how to lead in overwhelming circumstances, oh, for sure I recommend my book. Because it's important to, I think even leaders who lead in countries that have all the resources available, like America, for example, Mm -hmm. you still have to negotiate and you still have to deal with forces and enemies and frenemies and you still have to balance work with family life. And, And those are the things I explore in my book. What book changed your mind? The book I return to the most that changed my mind about the power of art and literature and how it can't go is Hemingway's Farewell to Arms. I'm a populist to a certain extent, and I like Disney. I like popular art. I like art that entertains. But Hemingway's Farewell to Arms convinced me that, oh, happy endings are optional. You don't have to have a happy ending. Got it. An unhappy ending can be brilliant, and I needed to read that. And I still reread it all the time. Art is supposed to surprise, and Hemingway persuaded me of that. Great answer. Great answer. If you hadn't been a writer, you would have been a... God, I'm not good at anything else. (laughs) That's a good answer. God did not make me a well-rounded person. (laughs) He did not give me other skills. I'm I'm not the kid who could write and also play the violin and also do math problems. No, 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 I'm not good with hunting. (laughs) <laughs> he may be left-handed and left-footed. And in all sports, I'm only, I'm only useful with my left hand and my left foot. I don't tennis that I'll get away with some right-handed stuff. But um, no, I don't have any well-rounded gifts. I'm not good at anything else, which limits my, my income possibilities, but which is, it is what it is. Fair enough. I'm grateful for the one gift I do have, but I'm not good at anything else. Dimitri, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciated you taking the time to speak with me about your novel, God Loves Haiti and about your experiences and literary taste. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. 
Here's a quick recap of the books that Dimitri mentioned in this interview. First of all, obviously his book, God Loves Haiti, published in 2015, which we discussed during the interview. Then he mentioned the book, The Half-Known Life by the British travel writer Pico Iyer, that looks at the concept of paradise and whether that can ever be attained. It was published earlier this year in January. He mentioned the Haitian poet Jean d'Amérique and his book Soleil à Coudre. Unfortunately, that has not been translated into English, so it's for French readers only. He mentioned the Haitian-American author Edwige Danticat, who is one of the leading literary voices of Haiti these days and definitely an author worth researching. And finally, he mentioned the book A Farewell to Arms by Ernest Hemingway, which was about the First World War and published in 1929. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lit with Charles. If you have any suggestions or comments, you can always DM me on my Instagram account at litwithcharles. I try to reply to all my DMs. If you enjoyed this episode, you should definitely subscribe or follow me. And more importantly, tell your friends and family.